This episode of The Backdrop, Untold Stories in Golf, is brought to you by New Club Golf Society, a humble community of golfers connected by our love for the game. Follow us on social media with the handle New Club Golf. Michael Bamberg, welcome to The Backdrop. Uh, Matt, thank you. Delighted. Now, even though we've been on the phone for a while here, we're doing a visual thing but it's really an audio thing that we're doing. Do I have that correctly? It, it is an audio thing. Correct? It is an audio thing that we're doing. This is a podcast, so it'll be in people's ears mostly. However, because we've worked so hard and we do have video, we also put these on YouTube occasionally. Okay. And you're wearing already sporting your your pizza and love hat. Uh, that looks like it's it's seen a few few days. Well, you know, I I believe in washing baseball hats. I also believe in washing golf balls. Uh, and I haven't bought a golf ball in a long time. My wife goes to yard sales and she'll sometimes call, you know, the balls will be in the, uh, the egg cartons. And she'll say, which one is it that you like again? Is it, is it the Pinnacle or the Pro V1? And of course, the deal with the Pinnacle is the Pinnacle is the most commonly found golf ball. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> So, no, Crusade, if I really appreciate the call, but it's, it's, I'm looking for the Pro V1s. Not that I can tell the difference, because I can't. <laughs> but you like to think that you can. You like to think your game is tuned enough to tell the right. difference. Uh, so this came together, in my mind, very serendipitously, because um, you know, we had a member who was reading this one right here, The Second Life of Tiger Woods, and, and he had sent you an email and the day that he connected us uh, to, to have this conversation for New Club Golf Society and our book club, uh, that was the day I had turned the final page on this one to the Lynx land. And uh, very literally, I, I had that email sent to me the day I turned the last page on it. And I was, I was very um, moved by that one. So I do want to spend some time talking about both today. Uh, but before we get to any, any of your books. How old are you, Matt? I am 35, just turned 35. Okay. I was 30 when I wrote uh, that book. So that might have a little something to do with your connection to it. I think so. And, I, and I've heard similar from people at that, uh, that age range. So maybe, maybe that's the secret there. Um, before we get to any of your books, I did want to say thank you for your uh, Bamberger Briefleys. So where did those come to be? Well, we need, you know, the nature of anything that ends in .com is whatever it is, you can't give it enough. Uh, so uh, golf.com is a repository for all manner of golfiana, and uh, you can't give the editors enough because the, the appetite's insatiable. And it's been great for me. I've been writing every day since uh, the virus has uh, shut down the PGA Tour. And uh, because I've been around the game for a while, I've got different things that I can write about. And they're just really super quick hit things on golf.com. But anyway, Matt, thank you for, thank you for noticing. Well, the one that I was uh, enthralled with and I thought was A-plus reporting was Tiger's Gum of 2019. And, and I, I thought I was alone in this. I was obsessed with finding out wh what was behind the gum. And you, you dug in, you know, so thank you for, for doing that. I tried to dig in, but I've got no answer for it. It, but still, at least I the, knew someone else is out there digging. Yeah. The proffered answers make no sense. I think everyone would agree upon that. If Joe LaCava says, I don't know what the gum is, he doesn't get it from me. 
And Tiger Woods says, it's orange trident, and I get it from Joe Bacaba. And the gum in his mouth is gray-white. And orange trident, which is actually called, like, I bought it back because I'm not a gum chewer, but I wanted to know. It's actually called citrus something. <laughs> it's orange. <laughs> I, it doesn't add up. That's, it doesn't add up. Uh, That's all I got for you on that. <laughs> well, people want to know if it's CBD gum or not. And I have no idea whether, I don't know what it is because Tiger's not talking about it. Yeah, we'll never know. Very straightforward question. I think a lot of our members, we selected this one right here for May's book club, The Second Life of Tiger Woods. Uh, people are pumped. We're excited to dive in. But a standard question that a couple of our members just had, you go, I've read a lot of books about Tiger. Well, why is this one different? Well, the starting point there is if you're going to read two books about Tiger, I would, su- I would suggest you read the Armin Katayan Jeff Benedict biography called Tiger Woods. It's about, might be close to 400 pages. And it covers his life really from birth right through Memorial Day of 2017. And then probably the second book to read in my, in my view of things would be uh, Hank Haney's book, The Big Miss, because that's really a deep dive into the techniques that make Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. So when I say the techniques, the swing, the mental approach, practice rounds, what he's doing on the range, along with some very interesting personal insights uh, into him. That book was uh, co-written with a friend of mine. Haney's ghostwriter is what I'm trying to say, is, is a close friend of mine named Jaime Diaz. Many of your viewers, you, you know that name, Matt? Oh, yeah. I, many, many would. And, um, and then this book picks up really, I think, the most interesting period of Tiger's life, but it's only interesting because of everything that happened preceding it. Memorial Day 2017, when he was arrested on a DUI charge with five potentially lethal drugs in his system, and covers the next 23 months of his year, of 23 months of his life, to winning his fifth green jacket. 11 years after he won his last major. So that is unbelievably compelling to me. So to the question of why, you know, with all these other Tiger books around, I I don't know what the answer is that. All I know is that what we all witnessed from a distance, I saw closer up than many had the opportunity to. And that's what I tried to write write about. How did he get from that roadside arrest to Butler Cabin? That low point, did you, it sounds like that was the, the answer that you were looking for. That, that was the portion you found most compelling uh, to tell a story about. Was 2009 ever in your mind of, of maybe we start there? Well, no, not for my own writing, because I feel like that's been very thoroughly dissected. One, two, Matt's referring to what I often call the Hydrant Incident or uh, the Stiletto Parade when all the lady friends uh, came out. I have a broad feeling about that whole period, which is people's sex lives are their own business. We're going to talk here for Matt for a while, and I guarantee you one thing that you are not going to ask me about is my sex life. Because we broadly regard that as a private matter, and I 
Now, are there times, unusual cases with clergymen or public officials that maybe one's sex life would be appropriately part of public discussion? I would say, yeah, there are rare occasions, but they're very rare. And I wouldn't, you know, as long as the activity is, is legal, I wouldn't see why we'd want to investigate any private person's uh, sex life. However, and it's a big however, so I didn't want to start with that. It's been covered. It's been dissected. But having said that, I think you do see a period, everyone knows who follows golf, everyone knows that he won the U.S. Open in 2008. And then he didn't win the PGA Championship in 2009 when he was in position to do so. And then the end of 2009 is when all these affairs started coming out, 2010. And then I would say the trajectory of his life, to be crude about it, from 2009 through that roadside arrest in 2017, I think the trajectory of his life is broadly like that. Now, I know he won in 2012 and 2013, but his body was falling apart as well. I know Nike trotted out this uh, campaign with a quote from Tiger, allegedly, where he says, winning takes care of everything. I don't believe that winning takes care of everything. And I actually feel sorry for anybody who even believes that that's possibly true. So I'm not starting this book in 2009, but I'm very interested in what happened between 2009 and 2017, because you needed that path in his life to really try to understand how remarkable what he did from Memorial Day through now is. And, and many of us rewatched 2019. And uh, I was curious, 2019 Masters, for those who haven't yet, what are you doing during quarantine? You know, rewatch the Masters. It's one of the best things you can do. When I rewatched it, I was a little surprised. And this is only the, the first time I've rewatched it, that it almost felt uh, a little subdued for me. Like it wasn't the, the constant pinnacle that it, it was. And I think part of me was missing the context that you're talking about. You know, last year it was so surreal that he had come back to that point. But when I rewatched it, I almost had forgot about that because I've seen Tiger back for a year. And I, I think my question with this is that, you know, if, it, if this is the greatest sports comeback of all time, which many are, are saying it is, um, does that mean the, the depth and the darkness of where he was has to be lower than any professional athlete ever had been? Well, I think, I think you could make the case that it was, uh, when he's driving around Florida with those five drugs in his system, uh, you know, he's one mistake away from dying or killing somebody else. So that's a, uh, that's a pretty low moment. But Matt, to, to use the word you just used, you say, well, it's the greatest comeback of all time. People are saying that. Well, that begs the question, what are you actually coming back from? Now, in Tiger's own telling of his own story, what he's coming back from is a series of injuries. But in actual fact, he's coming back from much more than that. He's coming back from the psychic pain of having your sex life revealed to the whole world, the psychic pain of a DUI arrest and your mugshot being broadcast to the whole world, 
the psychic pain of your body falling apart, even though you've tended to that body so carefully for so many years, and it's still betraying you. So you're talking about a great, a great amount of hurt, mental and physical hurt that he's trying to come back from. So you've, you've really actually, to really appreciate what it is that he achieved at that master's, you've got to understand those things. And I know this sounds super weird, but what I, everything I just said, whether he would have won that master's or, or not won that master's, that wouldn't really matter. You know, it was, if you're a Tiger fan, of course, it's great that he won the master's. But just the fact, and I got this, you know, I got to know Arnold, not Arnold Palmer, I would say actually pretty well late in his life. It's not really all about winning. It's not what Nike said in that ad. Winning does not take care of everything. But being in the game, I'm not going to say it takes care of everything, but it's what pretty much all of us want in some aspect of our life. We want to be relevant. We want to be in the game. We want what we do to count and to matter, whether it's our family life or our work life or our social life or our athletic life. We want it to matter. Some of my best friends in golf, I wish I had this more than I do. You're playing a $2 NASA with them. You can't believe how much they care. And I admire that. But that, there's no, well, win or lose, you can't believe how much they care. They're, you know, they don't have the thing after six holes, oh, I don't have it today. Well, Tiger's got that in spades. And that's one of the things that makes him so compelling. The, the, the happiness, I, again, I just started the book. I actually flipped the first couple pages on it this morning. Um, and it did strike me. I, uh, there's some aspects you talk about happiness already, um, of tiger. And, uh, we were watching a lot of different masters recently with, with quarantine and 2012, he was, he was in the hunt. He was yeah. making a run or actually 2011 or 2012 tiger. 10. He had a, he had a fourth place finish. Um, Whatever year Adam Scott won, uh, he was right there. I mean, he's played well in Masters uh, before winning this one. And I think it was Charles Schwartzel year. Um, yeah, and then so, the Adam Scott year. And then the, Adam Scott. the Adam Scott year was when he hit the flagstick and had that penalty and continued playing. Right. Well, it, I believe it was Charles Schwartzel then, and he is in contention. But, um, you know, you talk about watching him last year at a moment on Friday where he was very, very happy. And you, you maybe the happiest you said you've ever seen him. Um, that when we're rewatching this one from 2011 or what it was, he was, uh, he was in the hunt. He was in contention right where he wants to be. But my, my wife even made the comment, why is he so angry? And he was throwing in, in shots, you know, just knocking down pins. And he looked like his game was really on, although his swing looked painful, uh, in a lot of ways to the Sean, Sean Foley years. And right. And I think uh, I don't even have a question here, but just, just that arc. Do you see that that very clearly? Because you know him, you followed him more than anybody. Is that 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 happiness has grown within him gradually, or just boom in 2019? We now can all see it. I think your wife's insight is tremendous, and I completely agree with it. Uh, there was something really weird about how. Well, she was talking about the Masters. But let's just say even his wins in 2012 and 2013, they weren't moments, they weren't celebratory moments in my, in, in, in my view of it. 
And obviously he's an enormously talented golfer because with his body falling apart in a, in a very complicated private life, he's still winning golf tournaments. That's not easy to do. But it was sort of a demonstration of that he was in an unhappy place in his life. So to compare those wins in 12 and 13 with how he responded to his family in the gallery, Caddy and his playing partners in 19, it's, it's absolutely night and day. Uh, so I think that's where, even without reading this book, just by watching, you could tell that he's been through a remarkable growth in his in his personal life so you've you've been covering him since he was uh an amateur uh this time around through this book did you learn something new that really surprised maybe maybe surprised you i think i have uh i think he is a uh, much more empathetic person uh now than 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 i've ever known him to be before uh he has shown uh, a sense of humor and a, uh, and a humility. He actually uses the word gratitude now in ways uh, he never has before. And um, uh, so I think I've seen sides of him, but I, I don't think I'm unique in this. I think we all have that, uh, that, that you hadn't seen before. Yeah. Well, we, we uh, we're pumped to, finish it and knock it out and have you back for the book club. Um, I won't speculate any more on the rest of the book. Okay. I'll just, I'll just read it. And then <laughs> I admire the fact that you're not faking it, Matt. So many people do. Oh, good. All right. Yeah. I haven't, uh, I just, those few pages, but um, you know, I think for our membership, our average age is 37.2, I believe. And uh, a lot of people in that generation, that's our guy, you know, for better or worse, whether we are, with him or against him um, at any point in his life, it, it, it was our it was our time. We grew up with the game. Well, how do you broadly feel about him? Do you uh, do you, uh, How do you broadly feel about Tiger? Do you consider yourself a Tiger fan? Do you root I, for him when yeah. it was Molinari and Tiger down the stretch? Do you find yourself rooting for Tiger? Uh, I <laughs> room for both, but yeah, I think po- probably very close, but on the Tiger side. Mm-hmm. And for me, you know, I think back to 1998 Masters was very uh, memorable for me because Jack Nicklaus made a run and my dad was telling me how great Jack Nicklaus was and he's the greatest of all time. And Tiger wasn't in contention, but I remember sitting there thinking, you know, even at that time, what are you talking about? My dad's nuts. Uh, this Tiger kid, he's talking about this, this old guy who looks like he's limping up the fairway, you know, barely in contention. And I'm, I'm thinking – you know, no, this new guy, this is golf, dad. This is what my, this is what golf is. And yeah. so it, it just, uh, for me, it was, it, it was that big difference that I, I was pulling for the guy, whether my dad liked, you know, he couldn't stand him because he was always throwing clubs and screaming, uh, a little bit on the course and showing, you know, fist pumps and all that. He, that wasn't the golf that he, he liked, but for me, it was cool. Very interesting. Um, I want to shift gears to this one, to the Lynx land. Uh, because as oh, I you said, got a, you got a rare collector's edition there. You got a first edition hardcover. They're hard to find. <laughs> the, you, might what, have, you could spend eight or nine dollars on eBay to get that. There, it's more on eBay, my friend. I, I was, <laughs> we were digging for this one. It's not as in circulation as much as we would like for our book club selections. But uh, 
I, I, I want to yeah, talk about definitely, definitely a paperback you can get very inexpensively. <laughs> okay. The paperbacks are out there. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the guy who recommended it to me. We had our pilgrimage planned to Scotland for this May, oh, okay. which is, is now canceled. But the gentleman who's a, a ambassador member of ours from Arkansas, a gentleman by the name of Jim Hartzell, huge fan of yours, and maybe even had some communication with you in the past. I was running through the list of books we were using as resources to plan uh, our journey over there. You know, a 12-day trip. We had 30 people going. So I'm diving into all the resources. And I had not heard of this one. And he said, you know, everyone else was saying, oh, you got to, uh, if you want to learn about Shishkin, read this. If you want to learn about Oscar Nash, read this. And his, his quote, I, I wrote it down because it, it was unlike anyone else. He said, read to the Linkslin. This book shaped much of my life wow. for, for the better. A, and so I'm curious, when you hear something like that, um, well, what goes through your head? Well, it, it's, uh, it's overwhelming. Uh, it's a great feeling to know that I was able to do something that could bring a measure of joy uh, to, to another person and, and enrich uh, uh, their life, uh, his or her life. Um, so Jim, is that who it is? Jim in Arkansas? Jim in Arkansas. So, yep. so Jim, thank you for that. And uh, you know, I have heard that from time to time. Um, there's something going on in this book in particular because uh, that's half a lifetime ago for me. I'm 60 now. I was 30 then. My wife and I are going to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary uh, this year. And uh, we were starting out. And I know you are in your mid-30s and a typical age of your uh, members is right at your age. And, and a lot of uh, your members are starting out and uh, starting out in married life and careers and mortgages and all the rest. And... Um, to take a break from that or pause as people say of this uh, quarantine period and just explore something that, uh, that you know a little bit about and want to know more about. Um, I've realized over the years that people, uh, have, you know, there's a phrase in Hollywood of this, uh, aspirational something like that. I don't even know why I brought that up, but there's there, I have picked up on this quality of like, Oh, you did what I wish I could do. And, um, and that's the beauty of being a reader. Go someplace where that writer will take you. Um, so I'm grateful to Jim and, and others like Jim over the years who have who have come on the journey with me. And uh, uh, it's funny, I've heard, uh, well, you've read the book, uh, many won't know what I'm talking about, but there's this secret little six-hole golf course called Achnafri in the book. Well, I've had, you know, I've heard from readers who have found Achnafri. If you want to find it, knock yourself out, but I'm not going to tell you how to get there. <laughs> I had that on my question list is where is it? How do I get there? Have you been back? I have been back. Was it as, as uh, special as you remembered? It was different. Uh, John Stark, the, uh, the Scottish golf professional who took me there was, he was there for one of the visits. He came with me and that was really special. And then he died. I wonder, I wonder if I'm misremembering this, but I feel like uh, I went definitely once with John Stark after the book came out, and that was special because it was John Stark. And then uh, I feel like I went one other time after he died, and it was just a different experience. But having said all that, um, you know, you only get to do a new thing once, and after that, it's different. It's like watching The Godfather, you know. 
I love The Godfather. My dinner with Andre, I love my dinner with Andre. But whatever you, and you'll get things upon multiple viewings. You watch the 2019 Masters and it was a different experience for you the second time you watched it. So all these things are, are different when you go back. Yeah. Let's stay with John Stark. Uh, he's your, your own personal Chivas Irons, it seems. Hmm. Do you revisit those lessons for your own golf game today? I do. Because uh, you know, uh, every teacher has their own thing. And usually what the teacher has it what, is what works for that teacher himself or herself in, in, in their own golfing life. And I think that's fine. I think that's to be expected. Uh, but uh, in this particular case, uh, Stark is a, was very, and this is sort of an old Scots tradition anyhow, very geared towards the rhythm of the swing. Sandy Lyle's father, who was a Scottish uh, golf professional, um, he used to talk about make the swing look pretty. In fact, I think that's in the book. And Stark talked a lot about breathing, letting some air into your lungs on the backswing. And um, like a lot of people, I tend to get uh, too fast at times or don't have uh, the proper ratio of uh, backswing to downswing uh, tempo. And uh, so the idea of breathing and releasing the breath uh, is very helpful to me. And, um, and I think Stark's overall idea of trying to get away from the number and the American obsession with counting score and I know this sounds new agey and weird, and this guy was not new agey and weird, but really just appreciating the fact that you're on a golf course in a beautiful setting, that golf ball is sitting there doing nothing, and you are going to propel it forward and let yourself go a little bit and do it. That has really been the biggest thing for me. And of course, you know, that's years ago, there was a funny quote from Brad Faxon. He's on a practice putting green at Westchester, I think it was. And they said, oh, Brad, what are you working on? And he said, not caring. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot to that. Uh, that. Those two words are really the study of a lifetime. Uh, but, of course, it's not really not caring. It's really more like letting yourself go. And I think that's one of the things that we all love about golf so much is that modern life gives you so few opportunities to let go. And now, you know, you're on that golf course and your cell phone is either ringing or you've turned it off and then you're worried about who's trying to reach you. It's harder and harder to let go, but it's more and more important than ever. I wish I could find the the portion of the book that John Stark compares uh, the American version of golf to the Scottish version of golf or the the version that he grew up with. I think he even had issues with a little bit of the modern nation in Scotland at the time or that the American version. No question. What do you think, fast forward to now, is – where, where do you see those two worlds? Because I've been over there. I've been inspired. Part of New Club in our golf society is the inspiration of Link's culture, uh, what it is to play golf there versus, versus here. Do you feel like in America we're going to move more that direction? Do you think we're going to move further away from it? Where, where is the game here headed? Uh, interesting question, man. Just a quick note on that. I can't remember precisely who was in this conversation. But I think it was like Jay Haas and Fred Couples and others of that ilk and uh, maybe Mark Lemire. I'm really not sure. Uh, but they went over and they were going to play in the British Open Open Championship at, uh, at Muirfield. And they were talking about some of the other nearby courses. And one of the guys says, 
yeah, how about that Luffness New? It's from 1880. What's new about it? So when I think about your new club, that uh, that comes to mind. Um, I'll answer your question, but a lot of it is wish fulfillment as I'm answering it. I, I wish we had a simpler game, fewer clubs, browner courses, shorter courses, shorter walks between greens and tees, more golf and twosomes and threesomes, fewer tee times, more honor boxes, uh, and a more casual game. And I mean, the handicapping system, Matt, if I played two holes of golf with you, I could almost guarantee you that I could figure out what you and I need to do to have a match to make it even. And by the way, the half stroke, there's not enough emphasis. I have a friend, Bert McHugh, we've played a lot of golf over the years. He's a lot better than I. And he gives me a half stroke a hole for 18 holes. So you never tie a hole. So you could be four down, but if I can make four straight pars, he's not going to make four straight birdies. He could, but not too likely. I'm going to get myself back in the match. Uh, and I can't make four straight parts, and he can't make four straight birdies, but, you know, I don't, I don't make four straight parts too often. But the point is, if you know each other's games, you can figure it out. Um, and uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, we are in a pause here with this, with this virus, and we are going to uh, adjust to, a, uh, uh, to life after the virus. And uh, life's going to be great. Life will go on. Life will be a little di different. But if uh, we play a more informal game along the lines that I was just talking about, I think it would benefit the game greatly. It might be at the expense of uh, the profitability of publicly traded companies that are, that are dependent on golf to some degree uh, for their profits. But, you know, the game's got a long, long history before there were any publicly traded companies that had their fingers in golf. So uh, that's probably my, my view of that subject. Yeah, I, thanks for sharing it. I, I didn't. I don't want to belabor that point because we talk a lot about things like this on the podcast of golf and its future and, and inspiration from a simpler game, maybe. So I, I won't belabor it. Um, but I appreciate your perspective. I thought I would too. I have to admit, when I open to the Linksland, um, I'm in planning mode. Right, I'm trying to put together a Scottish excursion for our members and a, and a great pilgrimage. And I was a little disappointed to find out it's this guy caddying through the Euro tour, you know, and, and at first I was like, well, can we just get to Scotland? Like that's to the Lynx land. Like what can it, can we, but I have to say now retrospectively looking at the book, I think I enjoyed your time with Peter Teravainen and the, the caddy bus and um, your disappointment, not, you know, making the Scottish open eventually when you guys got to Scotland. I think that aspect of the book I actually enjoyed more as a for, former competitive collegiate golfer. I, I just, I love the psyche of Peter, of your interactions with him. Um, was the, pl the planning process for this book? I mean, did you know how much you were going to spend on, on each of these topics? You were only 30 years old. So what, what went into your planning process and did it pan out to the book that you thought it would be? Great questions. Um, just a quick note about Peter, and this is not precise, but the quote's precise. Uh, so I counted for him in 1991, and then he continued on the European tour. This guy, by the way, grew up in Duxbury, Mass., outside of Boston. His father, I believe, was a phys ed teacher. Went to Yale on a scholarship. Very, very bright person. Has the numbers gene. Um, didn't his game really? Probably wasn't. Probably didn't have a good enough short game to make it on the PGA Tour, but on the European Tour, which was 
little less dependent on short game, greens are slower. Uh, he could make a living anyway. Plus, he was pathologically frugal. But anyway, 1995, he missed. He had never won on tour. He missed a slew of cuts, and then he won the Czech Open out of nowhere, and an enormous prize, something like 100,000 pounds. And in victory, his famous quote was famous to me: "Was now I'm up to Brooke." So that that that's a, this that's a sort of an insight into what uh, what Peter is like. Uh, I'm not a good planner. And I don't think, I think there's a lot of different ways to be a reporter and a writer. And my way is to not over plan and overthink and just see where things go and how they shake out. Peter was nice enough to say, I'll give you, I'll give you one week and we'll see what goes from there. That's all I had going over. Uh, so Christine and I were newlyweds. I took a leave from my job. I was a reporter on the Philadelphia Inquirer. Christine quit her job and we went off to Europe. Christine and I were just talking about this the other night. Very, very fortunately, Peter made the first cut uh, uh, at a place called San Rafael, I think St. Melian, I think might have been the name of the course in the south of France. And I'm glad he did because if you make a cut, you're not too inclined to make a switch for the next week. You know, if you're a journeyman, you make the cut. That's sort of the starting point for success. Uh, You know, did I make more money than I spent this week? That's usually, you know, the, the equation. Uh, so Peter started making a number of cuts with me on the bag anyway. Short answer to your question is no, I didn't really have much of a plan. Uh, and I didn't know anything about John Stark. I didn't know there would be these two halves. That all sort of, but our, our thing was let's have the adventure and, and see where it goes. Yeah, I took away from it that, you know, the quest was, although seemed somewhat simple and undefined, was um, it filled in with this journey that had so much more substance. And so what I took away from it was, hey, it's not about getting to St. Andrews. It's not about, you know, playing Royal Doorknock and checking these off your list. It's you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know the road that's going to take you there. Um, but being present and enjoying it, which is what you and your wife did, um, which is why I think so many people have found it uh, truly uh, inspiring. That's very nice, but that's not only very nice, that's extremely accurate. And I'm not a serious competitive runner at all. I mean, I'm a slow jogger, but even in like, like let's say I'm in Columbus covering the uh, Memorial tournament. And you know how, if you're, are you a runner, Matt? Uh, no. Okay. But people who are runners, would know this. you know, they chart things out. They know what their pace is going to be. They know where they're going to start, where they're going to finish. And my thing is, I just go out with my phone. And if I get bored, oh, I'm going to tell you something amusing along those lines. Yeah, I'll just stop. And if I can walk home, I'll walk home. If I need to get an Uber, I'll get an Uber. And if I can run all the way back to the hotel, run all the way back to the hotel. In other words, I, it doesn't work for most people the way I do things, uh, but, it, but, it, but it works for me. But just amusingly, I hope this isn't too arcane. St. Andrews, Carnousie, the year that, uh, 2018, when uh, Molinari won the British Open, I stayed in St. Andrews, even though it was quite a distance away. And one day I went out for a jog and I just went up this big hill out of town and I ran and ran and ran. And then I just stopped because I was tired or bored or whatever. And where I stopped, there was a beautiful restaurant, like a country restaurant. So I'll go check it out. And then behind this restaurant, there was a little art studio. And behind the art studio was a little stone cottage and like this is all really familiar and you'll remember this in the book a man named david joy 
who plays old Tom Morris in these reenactments. He lived there. And the point was, this is 2018. I was last there in 1991. And through just the magic of Scotland and the weirdness of life, I wound up, you could wind up a million different places. I wasn't trying to, there was nothing familiar about to me, but I wound up, and anyway, I knocked on the guy's door. It was, it was David Joy, uh, who had done this old Tom Morris impression in 1991, and we hadn't seen each other since then. And we had a great visit. So, you know, uh, serendipity is a big part of life, or a big part of my life. Yeah, and it does seem like places like Scotland have, have it in spades. Um, Peter Teravainen, how's he doing today? And does he, does he play golf for his own enjoyment? Yeah, great question. He doesn't, he really can't play. Well, first off, his body's falling apart. Uh, I think that might have something to do with, you know, the, uh, the, the, he would rent cars for six and seven pounds a day. Uh, you know, in the early nineties, five pounds a day, he'd stay in motels or hotels. They didn't call them that their uh, pensions or whatever, you know, 10 and 15, 20 pounds a night, you know, and he used to say, you know, the one thing I'm looking for is a high quality mattress, but believe me, a lot of these places did not have high quality mattress. Anyway, the point being is he, he rode it hard. He played hard for a long time and the, the body didn't hold up, but really golf for him was not really like he says this in the book, you know, the joy of hitting an iron in practice, a perfectly struck five iron in practice is meaningless to him. Uh, and, uh, uh, he played golf to compete and to make a living. And once he really couldn't do that, uh, golf didn't mean to him what it might mean to, to you or Todd. Uh, and uh, so, no, he, he doesn't play. He lives in Singapore. He's very active in uh, – well, he's got a now grown daughter. He's very active in her life and his wife's life, uh, his investment life. And uh, he follows – uh junior golf very closely for whatever reason he tries to help kids uh find a path to to scholarships that he might not know about uh but no he's not he's not actively playing anymore as far as i know man what a character i i just, I just really identified with a few different aspects of that man <laughs> did, you, did you ever try to play professionally no very very a light-hearted uh three months after school playing as an amateur in the Ohio pro stuff, but no, nothing mm. too serious. Uh, did you ever consider seriously consider caddying as a career uh, over writing? No, writing is really my, uh, my first love. Um, and, you know, I'm a terrible caddy. So now maybe I could have gotten better at it, but I still would have been, you know, basically terrible. Having said that, the caddying thing really is about, you know, there's the mechanics of caddying, which I'm terrible at, but then there's the rapport you have with your player and that part's completely unpredictable. And, you know, there could be players that I'd be good with, you know, Tiger wouldn't be one of them, but Fred might be Fred couples, you know, in other words, can you talk to the guy? Is there a comfort level there? Is there an easy rapport? So, you know, maybe I, maybe with the right guy I could have been uh, okay at it. Um, but having said that, when we bought our first house, we did put down enough money on our first house where I felt like, oh, if I lose my job at the newspaper, I'd still be able to make the mortgage payment working as a club caddy. I do remember having that calculation. So, no, I never really thought about it seriously, but I do think it's a noble profession. 
Having said that, I think the club caddies today way overdo it. You know, I don't want a tour guide out there. You know, I want a person who is literally going to keep up and shut up. And when I say keep up, I mean get to my golf ball before me. In fact, I, had, I played at the Philadelphia Cricket Club and I had a caddy a while back. And I said, you know, this is how it works. You know, uh, uh, I'm going to grab clubs from you. I want you to four caddy. I want you to get the ball ahead of me. If I ask you for a number, just give me the number. And the, and the kid says to me, yeah, yeah, I, I know how this works with you. I said, really, why is that? He said, I had you last year. <laughs> <laughs> I always think I can remember every caddy's name. I mean, it's almost impossible if you play 50, 60 rounds a year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, a couple more last questions on, on To the Lynx Land, and, and we'll move oh, on. This is enjoyable. Uh, who's more adventurous, you or your wife? She's more adventurous. She just... As a matter of fact, I was at the Players' Championship this year, and she was in France on her way to Spain, on her way to Tunisia. And I think it was the Wednesday night or the Thursday night of the Players. Now, let me think of here. I think it would have been when Trump said in his Oval Office address that he was shutting down the borders. And uh, – and, Christine was not going to go to Tunisia, but she was ready to go to Tunisia, and she got home right away. She got the next flight out of out of the Gulf or for Philadelphia, where we live. Uh, but she's got the travel bug, and um, uh, and she'll go in on a plane, and go anywhere at any time. So the the short answer is she is by far the more adventurous of the two of us. What, you guys were newlyweds when you kicked this thing off. Was there another time in your lives that this would have been possible? Well, once you have kids and a mortgage, it becomes a lot harder. Now, we're, now we still have a mortgage. Uh, our kids are out of the house, so now it is possible. And periodically, Christine will say, "Do you think it's time for to the links lane to Asia, or you know, <laughs> you know uh, or you know, some other thing?" And uh, in a sense, to the links lane follows from another book I wrote in 1986 when I was in my mid twenties. I carried on the on the U.S. tour and wrote a book about that called. Uh, the Green Road Home. So I don't like sequels in general. I like to do new things. But in my mind, vaguely, To the Links Land is a sequel already. Uh, so I'm not interested in retreading old in, in old ground. But uh, uh, I, w- I'm, I am up for anything, particularly in my writing life. And I've written a book about uh, the, the film director, M. Night Shyamalan, and wrote a book, book about a high school called Pensbury High School that has a big prom. Uh, so in my writing life, I would like to, I wrote a play and I try to write screenplays. So in my writing life, I like to think of myself as an adventurous person. Uh, but when it comes to travel, I'm, I'm very happy, you know, checking in at a Marriott and being home. Well, there's an element of the book that I really appreciated. And I think many of our members will too, because, you know, we're, obsessed, uh, passionate, whatever word you want to say about the game of golf. And we have spouses and partners that maybe aren't to our degree. Um, but I like to say that it's really just understanding each other's level of crazy. And in, in our world, you know, my wife, uh, her and her mom trained golden retrievers for therapy dogs. So she's obsessed with golden retrievers and dogs. And so yeah. I, I understand that. And, you know, when, when I'm asking to go to, parts of the world to play golf she's actually i just got to include something with dogs and it's it's good and it just seemed like your wife and you guys have a great partnership she was always finding new ways in every country that you were traveling through to 
uh, stay very busy. And, and I thought that was really cool. Well, it's neat. If you're lucky enough to have a, as you say, partnership where, uh, you know, a partnership of, of, uh, of two strong willed people will have its challenges. Uh, but if you can find common ground, like, uh, I want to play doorknock and, uh, and, you know, the Scotch Terriers are going to run through fields somewhere. And, you know, they, they have all these weird things with dogs in Scotland. I mean, they do. dogs. You know, it's Lord, it's, it's Lord, I don't know if it's Tweedmouth or Tweedmouth. I'm guessing it's Tweedmouth. But Lord Tweedmouth was the first one to breed a golden retriever. And I know that because of my wife. Right, right. Uh, it's interesting. And things show up, you know, if you're open to experience, like my wife and I went to Haiti as part of our on our honeymoon. And we were there on a voodoo holiday. In fact, there's all sorts of Haitian art in our, in our house. We were there on a voodoo holiday. And, and after that, Haiti's become, I'm not a Haitiophile, but if you see Haiti in the newspaper, I'm going to read about it. So, I mean, you just open your, uh, well, I've already mentioned it once, but in, um, in the movie, My Dinner with Andre, you happen to know that movie at all? Mm-hmm. It's really obscure, but anyway, uh, Andre, one of the characters, makes a reference to Finhorn. And Finhorn, do you happen to know anything about Finhorn in Scotland? I don't. It's way, it's way in the north. I think I must have passed it on the way to Dornock or something. I'm kind of blanking on it right now. I don't know why I'm blanking on it, but I just kind of am. But the point is that if you keep your eyes open, worlds unfold one to another. And I'm okay at this, the master of this is my friend Michael Murphy, who's 89 and sees the connections between things like nobody's business. My first job after college was on the Vineyard Gazette on Martha's Vineyard. And my neighbor at the time was a man named Bart Giamatti. And baseball buffs will know the name because he later became the commissioner of baseball. And people who went to Yale will know the name because he was the president of, of Yale University, which was the job he had when I met him. And some will know the name because his actor, his one, he has two sons, they're both actors, and one is a very well-known actor named Paul Giamatti. Then anyway, one, one thing that Bart said uh, that I recall, he was a remarkable man, but he said, you know, the ultimate sign of intelligence is the ability to see connections between seemingly disparate things. And I think that's a very valuable way to go to through life. And uh, I try to do that. I can see, Matt, that you do. And I think, uh, uh, I think golf lends itself to that because you start by wanting to get that ball in the air. You know, that's usually the first impulse for most golfers, the ball sitting there on the ground. It's a challenge to get the ball in the air. First, it's a bunch of ground balls and then you hit some line drives. And then eventually, if you're, you know, fortunate enough, you can actually see that nine iron up in the air and landing on the green. But then, you know, all right, what's the club that's doing it? What kind of grip should I have on it? Where should I be playing? What kind of grass am I playing on? What's the history of the club? When did they start accepting women members? In other words, uh, who is the architect? Who is the architect of the clubhouse? Do they have caddies? Uh, when did they integrate their caddy yard? In other words, there are layers and layers and layers of meaning and interest. And people say, don't you get bored about writing about golf? They're really the short answer is I don't because there are so many different avenues and paths into the game. That's the layers. The layers are so true. Uh, we always say that everyone's on their own journey, different 101, 401, but within each of those, you could 
you could go on for days. That's why I probably could talk to you for days. How many, how many guys were going to go on your Scotland trip? Uh, we had 30 all in. Oh, wow. That's neat. Yeah. yeah well, I hope you get to do it. I know you will get to do it, but yeah, we are not this summer. Just moved back a year. Let's move yeah. back to May of 2021. So we're still, yeah. we're still excited. Uh, we'll bring your woolens. It could be pretty cold over there in May. No, I don't think I've ever been in Scotland in May, but I can guess that it's probably pretty chilly. Yeah, you definitely could get a risk of some cold, cold days, but um, you get the sunlight. You know, it starts yeah. to to get up there in the sky. Right. Uh, is Makrahanish still the one course you would like to play for the rest of your life? Uh, I've been back to Makrahanish. It's really special. I was a member there for some years. Uh, I was a member. I was paying my dues faithfully every year, and it had been about 15-plus years since I went back between visits. And I said that to one of the local members. I said, well, I've been paying my dues faithfully, but I haven't been here in 15-plus years. And the guy says, that's a very good deal for us. And it was at that point that I realized, like, this makes no sense. But <laughs> I love Macaronish deeply. I would highly recommend it to you and your people. Uh, a club and a course I love – Every bit as much is called Ely Golf Clubhouse Ely, or new. That's not exactly the name, but Ely is the name. Do you, are you golf familiar clubhouse. With yeah, Ely, yeah. And um, it's this little golf course. It's out on a peninsula. The wind comes in every weird direction. I happen to have had, you know, with my friend Mike Donald, one of the most memorable games of my life there, and I love it there. Uh, but what's special about Scotland? Well, uh, is special about Scotland. But one of the things is. Of course, there are all these landmark courses, and people want to visit them and understand it'll be so. There's a lot of things that you just discover for yourself. And, uh, you know, when people write to me periodically and they want advice about where to go to Scotland, I'm not being flippant. Uh, I'm just like, you really got to figure it out for yourself. Uh, yeah, I can give you some names, and you can give names. Anybody who's been to Scotland can give names. But the real joy is discovering for yourself. That is some good advice. So I'll, I'll wrap up with a couple questions, maybe not related to any book, but I'm, I'm interested to ask, uh, you know, reading so many of them, uh, now I'm referencing the books, you are someone who enjoys the mystical, uh, emotional, all those layers that you talk about, a deeper sense of, of golf. I'm, I'm curious, you've also as a reporter been, you know, around the biggest icons of the game. Um, is there someone in particular that you saw more of yourself in than anyone else? Oh, that is a very, that is a really interesting question. Um, uh, in my fantasy life, this is not an icon in the sense that you're speaking of it, but he's an icon to me and I'm, he might well be an icon to many of the people, some of the people listening. Uh, in my fantasy life, my mind is nimble like Michael Murphy's is. I know it's not. I wish it were. Uh, I hope my body is uh, as cooperative. If I uh, live to be my late 80s as he is now, we were together at Pebble Beach uh, at the Open last year. He was 88 or 89. He's climbing the hills like it's nothing. Uh, this is a guy who, when he was in his early 40s, could run, a, I think, a sub-five-minute mile, which is extraordinary. Um, so he would be an icon to me that uh, I don't see myself in. I just, uh, I wish I did. I take uh, some cues from Nicholas because I think he's got a fundamental decency to him that I don't know how, you know, he, he, he's, he can be a cold person. I don't think he's a warm person, 
Um, and he can be uh, a self-absorbed person, but he is the greatest golfer of all time. If you're interested in golf, chances are you're there because you want to hear him talk, not yourself talk. Um, but I just think he has a core value system that uh, uh, I'm not going to say I see to myself. I'll just say that, uh, that I admire it. Um, I'd say getting to know uh, Arnold. Um, I'm not really answering your question, Matt, uh, but I see in Arnold a comfort with himself that I wish I could apply to my own life. So, uh, you know, this is crazy, but I can see what a, what a fuse tiger is under and what his expectations are. And like your wife was saying, uh, and how frustrated he gets when he can't fulfill it. And I know I've got that own quality in myself and I'm not proud of it, but I know it's part of who I am, you know, even shooting 90. And that's one of the things about golf, you know, I think that the ecstasy and the frustration of shooting 90 and shooting 66, I'm not going to say they're identical, but they're similar for sure. Uh, so I think we, uh, I think as a writer, it's really helpful to be able to see yourself in others so you can reflect that and try to present that to readers. Uh, I know I really haven't answered your question because you asked a different question, but if that's a satisfactory answer, I can quit there. <laughs> I'm not saying quit our thing, but in other words, um, I, it would be immodest to say, see myself in icons in the game. I'd be more comfortable saying, these are the traits that they have that I wish I had or yeah. that I can identify with. No, you, you, you flipped my question a bit, but I'm happy that you did. I think it's the, the those are the qualities of, of those people you've studied and reported on for so long, I'm sure you, you, you see yourself in them and some more that you probably want. Right. Let's move to just PGA this year. It's a, it's a different year. The tour is on hiatus. If there are no fans allowed at the Ryder cup, should they postpone? Well, the Ryder cup you asked specifically because obviously it's a unique case. Uh, the Ryder cup without fans it's hard to imagine having said that there's a lot to be said for, for doing it. There's a lot to be said for keep calm and carry on. And the second part carry on is you carry on as best you can with the modifications that are necessary. Keep calm is you don't have to cancel every last aspect of your life because we have this, dreadful uh, virus in our midst. You could have a Ryder Cup with many fewer fans spacing themselves appropriately and still have a Ryder Cup. You could have a Ryder Cup allowing only a thousand fans that are going to keep themselves six feet from each other. If you're going to have bleachers, the seating is going to be spaced out. It could be done. And uh, I know Rory McIlroy's feeling was, you know, a Ryder Cup without fans shouldn't happen. I'm not so sure. Uh, you know, I'm in favor of uh, golf courses being open now, but it just requires a level of maturity to play appropriately and safely. Uh, I really despise this term lockdown because this is not a lockdown. This is largely a societal movement to protect ourselves 
for her own long-term health and benefit at tremendous cost in the short term. It's the opposite of a lockdown. So, um, so anyway, to borrow from the Brits, uh, who often have a lot of insight into difficult situations because they've had their share, uh, keep calm and carry on. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And the carry on part shouldn't be dismissed. So to have a Ryder Cup, even with a lot of modifications, I think you could do it. I guess the short answer to, to your question is I think you could do it. You'd have, you know, Captain America out there shushing nobody and yeah. Tommy Fleetwood screaming at the ground. I, I think the emotion on the player side would still be intact, right? I don't know. It would be different. Uh, I think a lot of that emotion that we see from the players is them responding to over-the-top fans. And I think the Ryder Cup has lost its its reason to exist in ways by the over overzealous fan and the overzealous player response to the fans. And, you know, as one of my heroes, Herb Bloom, used to say, it's a very nice golf international golfing get together. I mean, these are, these are our greatest allies in the world, Europe and Great Britain. What are we fighting about? There's no fight there. These are our friends. We need friends in this world. So I've never really enjoyed I love the Ryder Cup. I enjoy being there a lot. But I think, you know, if it, if it all got tamped down a little bit, probably a good thing for the Ryder Cup. Uh, maybe not good for TV ratings, but good for the actual spirit of the Cup and, and what the game is really supposed to all be about. I have a quick Ryder Cup story that I think you will enjoy. Good. We're at the uh, Sunday Miracle at Medina 2012. And uh, we're we're behind the fifteenth. Who is that a miracle for? The Europeans? Is that how they use that phrase? That's they're the ones oh, that okay. use it. Yeah, not okay. us. Not us. <laughs> uh, I'm just a fan of golf. I'm just a fan of golf. And there's this, uh, you know, the porter, the nice Porto areas behind the fifteenth green where we're hanging out most of the day. And um, there's a big group of Scotsmen that were, and we had a pretty large group, and everyone's, you know, drinking, and there's a lot of chirping going on back and forth. Um, my brother put him on blast. He, he maybe, uh, took it a little more personal than the rest of us. Cause there's a little bit of maybe a, a push or something that may have happened, but our, our, our big buddy goes to the bathroom at this time and, and runs into all of them. And we felt this, this floor, there are two large men, both 250 plus the Scotsman and, and our buddy, Mike. And we felt this floor just, just shake. And we hear rolling around on the ground. These two emerge from the men's restroom looking like they are best friends with their arms oh, around wow. each other, laughing and cracking up. And I guess it was a, it was like a tussle that went wrong and they both looked at how ridiculous they were being. I just love that. That moment is one of our favorites. And they hung out with us the rest of the day. We hung out the rest of the day. That's a lot of fun. Matt, my wife, Matt, no. my wife just walked in the room. No, uh, now she's escaping. <laughs> Christine, Matt's been speaking of to the Lynx land. And want to know who is the more adventurous of the two. And I said, it's not even a contest. Exactly. Well, that's a great story, Matt. Well, that's, that's the kind of spirit that Herb Wound would admire. But that's, Five, yeah. that's 500 pounds worth of golfing <laughs> unity right there. <laughs> a lot of pounds. Right. Uh, so, Michael, thanks for being so generous with your time, man. Um, I, that was I, a lot of fun. 
I think, you know, to, to send us off, uh, I'm just curious about something I've seen in your bio, which is the U S patent that you hold on a golf club. Um, I okay. couldn't, I couldn't find it. What is it going to hit the mass market anytime soon? No, it hit the mass market in 2000. Uh, it's a, it, it was a utility club, uh, that I do have a U.S. patent on called the E club. I think patents lab for 17 or 18 years. So the patent has expired. So anyone out there in TV land is welcome to, to, to do whatever they like with the patent. Now, um, it comes back to a trip to Scotland. Uh, I saw guys putting from way off the fairway, way off the green. 60, 70 yards off the fairway, they'll start using their putter. Hard to do in the U.S. because our fairway grasses are different. They're not as firm. They're not as dry. But then I saw the, the tour player, Glenn Day, chipping with a three-wood, and Tiger later doing the same thing. So what I did was I took a five-wood. I, I basically filled it with lead, made it as heavy as I could. I put a gooseneck shaft on it like a pink putter, made it as upright as possible, and allowed you to play that running chip shot with a putting stroke, with a five wood head, with a, about 19 degrees of loft, but the weight of a sandwich. And the club actually works. It's really a very useful chipping club, and I have it. It works so well that Lee Trevino used it in his final British Open at the old course in 2000. And for you listeners in Chicagoland, I've been to 15 of Tiger's 14 major wins. The one I missed was 2000 at the old course when Lee Trevino used the E-Club. And the reason was I was covering the U.S. Women's Open, which was played in suburban Chicago uh, uh, that, that same week. So I, but I've, been, I've talked to Trevino about how he used the club. So that's the club. You, that you can definitely find on eBay. Um, <laughs> and uh, there, uh, we, I, it, we just had a member talking about how he is last resorting his chipping. He has nothing else to turn to. I, I think we found a solution. Maybe so. Um, there was a club years ago called the Alien Sandwich, and uh, it was also sort of a one-off club. And the guy who invented it, uh, I called him, and I said, well, you know, what's the deal? He said, well, you're going to sell 50,000 clubs. I said, why is that? He said, well, there are 50,000 kooks who will buy one of anything. But what they really are is 50,000 desperate people who will buy one of anything. And uh, so I can relate to what you're saying about, uh, about, uh, about your fellow golfer there. Whatever it takes. Exactly. By any means necessary. By any means necessary. Michael, thank you so much thank for you. spending time yeah. with us today. We're, uh, we're looking forward to having you back on for everybody so we can do oh, the, cool. uh, the book club. And uh, this has really been great to, to dive in to some of your books here and, um, and share it's with our members. It's amazing what you can do through, the, through modern technology once you get it working. Matt, thank you very much. Thank you for your patience and your great questions and your spirit. I really appreciate it.